Today, if you take a step back and look at our country, we have a significant portion of folks in the labor force that don't have college degrees. We do need funding structures that don't just fund systems level work, but actually fund the work that programs are doing to help people get jobs. It's complex and nuanced. The headline is easy, but I think that's what's really challenging and exciting about tackling this kind of really important issue. Today, we're looking closely at complicated ventures that have the potential for big payoffs. We're talking about investing in training outside of colleges and universities that builds successful professionals. The voices you heard are entrepreneurs and business leaders who are challenging others to follow their lead. The pathways to equitable job opportunities are dimly lit, but these thought leaders are shining a spotlight on their own successes to highlight how, with strategic investment, the job market can shift to be profitable and sustainable for many more Americans. Welcome to the Horizons podcast, where we take conversations from JFF's annual Horizons conference and move them forward. I'm your host, Tamisha Bridges-Mansfield. Today, I'm joined by special guest Sarah Miller, Principal Advisor with the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. Sarah's work centers around community and economic development within the Atlanta Fed's Center for Workforce and Economic Opportunity. She is also the co-author of Workforce Realigned, How New Partnerships Are Advancing Economic Mobility. The book features 19 case studies and nascent ideas on how to reboot economic mobility in America. There are more than 10 million unfilled jobs out there, and many don't require a college degree. But thousands of Americans without college degrees are being denied access to those jobs, despite the fact that the majority of Americans do not have a college degree. So how do we solve this problem to get more adults into well-paying, sustainable work? Sarah and I will explore the complexities of financing the future of work. Before we begin our conversation, let's listen in at Horizons. Here are two entrepreneurs who saw a gap and are having success closing it. Juke Su is CEO and founder of Pursuit, an organization that trains some of America's earners whose household income is less than $30,000 per year to become leaders in tech. Juke will speak after Nitsan Pellman, CEO and founder of Climb Hire. Pellman's organization also helps future techies get training in critical non-technical skills, including collaboration, communications, and critical thinking. I run an organization called Climb Hire, and the easiest way to understand Climb Hire is by me asking the audience two questions. So, how many people in this room have ever gotten a job through a warm introduction or somebody in your network? If that's happened to you, raise your hand. <laughs> okay, follow-up question. 
how many jobs have you gotten that way? Count them and put them up with your fingers on your hands. <laughs> All right, I see, lots of, I see lots of twos, threes, fours, fives. Most people in this room have gotten jobs through relationships and connections. Four years ago, I was an entrepreneur in residence at LinkedIn, and when I was there, they put a referral button on their platform. And what they learned by doing that was that the vast majority of job seekers were getting jobs through referrals. And all of you in this audience have demonstrated what the LinkedIn data um, was telling the company as well, which is that most people get jobs through connections and relationships. I had a hypothesis that there's lots of people out there who may not have robust networks or may not even really understand how their networks can be utilized for them to get great jobs. And if you don't get to go to a four-year college and play lacrosse and sing in an acapella club and join a frat, then you may not get to build social capital and relationships that then open up doors for the rest of your life. And our hypothesis was that those people end up potentially working in retail or earning minimum wage or working in a lot of gig roles. And then we needed to create a workforce and upskilling organization that focused on equal parts, on building networks, social capital, and relationships alongside of in-demand skills. And we are incredibly proud of the fact that 87% of our alum have successfully gone from working in low-wage jobs to middle-class jobs, and the vast majority of them have done that through the support system of each other and the alumni network that comes from Climb Higher. Okay, can you tell us a little bit about Pursuit? That's great. Yeah, so, so happy to be here today with everyone. Uh, you know, tackling this issue around social economic mobility, we primarily work with blue-collar workers, from low-income backgrounds and provide upskilling for them into the, the, the careers of the future, so folks on technology. You know, this is a very difficult problem. And I think part of our thesis is that there are a lot of perverse incentives among the different players, training institutions, students, employers, and funders. So our approach at a high level is taking the highest need and highest potential kind of adults, on average earning about $16,000, before our program, provide about a year of training, and then at the end of that, they get jobs around $90,000 a year. So, you know, really transformative in terms of income boosts. Now that sounds really simple, but it is very, very difficult. And I think the way we're able to do that though, it's not just focused on training, it is around a vertically integrated solution. Training has to be there, has to be important. Working with employers to remove structural barriers and, and providing support service to enable that to happen and then ultimately a financing mechanism that aligns incentives across from all those kind of stakeholders to make sure there are real results. Welcome back to our studios. I'm now joined by my special guest, Sarah Miller, Principal Advisor for the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. Sarah, thank you for joining me in this important conversation today. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Great. Uh, well, let's dive in. So as Juke said, um, this may sound simple, but it's really not easy. And barriers are being lowered for workers who haven't graduated college to access some federal and state jobs. How do we get the private sector now to follow suit, especially with a potentially loosening labor market? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, but I just want to underscore this with, you know, we still have a very tight labor market. 
right now. Um, I think the latest numbers are that there's 10.7 million job openings. There's 5.8 million unemployed. So I think there's two main areas of change that can close these gaps. One is skills-based hiring practices, and the other are these innovations in financing skill development. You know, if we can incent employers to use this moment to start to change their hiring behavior, which, as Juke mentioned, and I want to underscore, is not easy by any stretch. In fact, yesterday, the Atlanta Fed hosted a virtual conversation with chamber research and business leaders on this exact topic, on skills-based approaches, why they're important, what it takes, and how you need buy-in truly from top to bottom and bottom to top, all the way across of any organization. Time and commitment uh, is underscored throughout that conversation as the necessary elements to successfully adopt any new practice. So these ingredients, time and commitment, they often don't get as much investment as they should. So, you know, on the on the skills-based practices front, it's one thing to change the job description, um, and it's quite another to change longstanding recruiting, acquisition, development, and promotional practices. You know, they start to work in different ways on how they invest in their workforce. Some of these outcomes-based funding models share in that risk and lead to better outcomes uh, to have a better talent pool now and in the future. Um, so these are just different Different ways of thinking that are long, they take time, they require trust in order to really meet human capital needs in a way that is better for all of us and creates an economy that works for everyone. Yeah, and I think what's what's exciting about these types of income share agreements or outcomes-based um, financing arrangements is that they really address the cost barrier that many people face in skills acquisition. And one of the things that they bring up in the conversation that we'll also hear a little bit more later is around some of the other barriers that people face while they're in programs, right? Mm-hmm. And so would, would love to hear any of your thoughts or what you are seeing as it relates to addressing the supports that people need while they're going through training so that these programs can also be developed and innovated with that in mind as well. Sure. And I'll offer the way that I think about this, but also some resources out there and some ways that we can look at models that are happening right now that have already shown some successes to think differently about this, whether you're an employer, whether you're in the public sector. But these wraparound supports are incredibly important. If you think about, you know, we're talking with a working adult that maybe has a lot of familial needs that they need to meet financially and with their own time, it's hard for them to just drop out of the labor market and go into school. They need income, but they also need flexibility while they're pursuing additional education, while they're working. That requires an employer to think differently about how they schedule how they support that worker. Child care needs, transportation needs remain paramount as key barriers to keeping people out of the labor market or from advancing within the labor market. But I would say a lot of the other wraparound supports that are needed are easy supports that the public, private, and training sector can offer. The career awareness, helping them navigate what is the right next step for them? What is the right career path that they want to pursue? What is going to lead them to economic self-sufficiency in the quickest and most meaningful way possible that gets them into a job that offers them dignity, offers them autonomy, and and sees them as a you know very flourishing contributing member to that workforce. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of these more kind of soft supports that don't necessarily require new entire funding streams. So you know when you want to look at examples out there, I'll offer a couple that I think are really effective. You know, kind of 
guides or blueprints, let's say, for all of these players in the workforce system. There's this uh, Workforce Realign book that the Federal Reserve of Atlanta and Philadelphia and Social Finance did highlighting 19 different case studies around outcomes-based financing programs. You know, there is a community of practice program being led by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation called Talent Finance Innovation Network. And the last I'd say is something that JFF has, the impact employer model. I think that's a fantastic guide for employers to think about how they can be better employers, quality employers, and offer these other supports that their workers are going to need, not just now, but forever and always Mm -hmm. to be uh, attached to the labor market in a meaningful way. Yeah, no, and thank you for lifting up those examples and also for highlighting JFF's impact employer model. And I think it's part of the need to have a much broader conversation. One of the ways we are starting to think about it is having a skills and conversation about all the supports and things that workers and learners need to be able to maximize the skills that they have and take advantage of the skill opportunities before them. But it's all it's all connected. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, Sarah, let's head back to Horizons to better understand how the panelist programs are currently being financed. So we have what we call a benevolent ISA, um, an income sharing agreement. And we spend a lot of time researching models out there. There's a lot of income sharing agreements that are connected to what I consider to be a high level of interest. And so, you know, if you say to a student, You don't have to pay anything on the front end, but then once you get a job, you have to pay a certain amount every month, but then there's like 10% interest on top of that. That, to me, doesn't seem like the most student-friendly income-sharing agreement out there. And so we stayed away from those, and we essentially, through philanthropy, created our own income-sharing agreement in which everyone who comes into Climb Higher is earning below livable wage. That's a criteria to be in the program. So they don't pay anything when they're in the program and only when they get a job that pays 50K or more, then they're in a position to pay for the next person to have the same opportunity. And they pay $150 a month for four years. It's flat, um, it's not a percentage of their income and there's no interest. You okay? Yeah, I think this is a really important issue. I know. Finance might seem disconnected with what we all care about, which is you know, helping people, creating change and kind of these outcomes, but it's actually a really root issue to workforce development. Most workforce development is done by nonprofits. If you look at the pools of capital, in New York City, for example, for adults, it's about $28 million total pool of capital from foundations and corporations to support upskilling, job training, right? $28 million in New York in one of the wealthiest cities in the world. So I think it is really this issue. There's a funding mechanism, but also around outcomes, I think. So our approach, and I didn't know any of this. It was originally, and I'm from New York, from Queens, as a poor immigrant kid from Queens. I didn't know anything about philanthropy, nonprofits, any of this stuff. Just wanted to, you know, try to solve these kind of issues, right? And quickly, as we started raising philanthropy as well, yeah, realize these market conditions around that. So... How do we design a system that kind of enables that? You need the outcomes and the financing around that. So I think over the years, been doing this for like eight eight years now, realizing the issue's been the same, but trying to implement and develop these kind of tools with these kind of partners around creative capital. So, and part of this is also, I think our belief is that this is a long-term time horizon, right? If you really want a blue-collar worker into an excellent career, 
that takes multiple years to actually understand results. So if that assumption is correct, to really understand the outcomes, how do you align different kinds of capital to utilize that? So I don't think it's either or. This is, I guess, a much more nuanced kind of understanding of things. And I think what um, we have kind of time for. But I think we have to think thoughtfully about the different tools, different kinds of capital, and where the value is added to ultimately you know, create changes in kind of the system. But it, it is a really important part of the, the change that we're all seeking. Welcome back to our studio. Sarah, there are some key points there. The importance of not saddling these workers with debt and encouraging, as Nitsan said, more of a pay-it-forward system. Also, Juke referred to creative capital. What does that mean and how do companies get there at scale? So to me, creative capital means creative ways of using already existing capital and how we think about deploying that in a way that redistributes and rebalances risk so that it's not borne on the backs of workers, especially low-income workers, to cover all of that cost up front. It's not looking exclusively at the public system to be paying for all of the training and education without private investment as well, and really reincense the businesses to come back and invest in a different way. You know, I, I hope the way that the plenary uh, panelists are looking at this and what we'll see from some wins in the near term from these programs that we have, the pay it forward funds, the social impact bonds, um, that it will show employers that, you know, you need to shift to be more of an investor in rather than a consumer of your own workforce. And it takes different approaches. It takes different thinking. And it does, I would say, take time. So bringing private capital to the conversation is not just a, wouldn't it be great? It's a mission-critical commingling of funds in different ways to, to blend that capital now. And it's a long-term horizon. So that's something else that I think Juke mentioned. Like, these are, these are long-term investments with different types of returns that they get over a longer horizon because our objective is to rebalance the system in a way that makes sense long-term. Yep, exactly. One of the things you brought up in our last segment was around the recent book that the Atlanta Fed published, Workforce Realigned, How New Partnerships Are Advancing Economic Mobility, and how that book examines a lot of different potential options for more equitable financing. So in what ways can the public and the private sector create better partnerships and better approaches to get to that scale that we do smartly and over the long term. Sure. And so the, on the Workforce Realign book, it's sectioned into three different areas. What public policy needs, how employers and uh, public partners work better together, and looking at student uh, as, the, as the payer into these systems. So it gives a wide array of ways to think about this and, and really look at different kinds of partnerships. But I'll say, the way that some of these partnerships can be better uh, structured and offer longer term positive outcomes is not just inside of these complicated different financing systems. I mean, some of the examples that we have in the book are as simple as restructuring contracts so that you're incenting both parties to co-achieve the goal that you've laid out. So it's not just all on the hands of one party versus the other party. So having, you know, clawback provisions in the contracts is one way to better integrate those partnerships and truly make it a partnership that if we both win together. Um, I think that's absent a lot of times. And that's a simple change. Just relook at how you structure contracts with your training or service providers 
and make it so that you have some skin in the game as well. Uh, from employers pulling them into the conversation and really leveraging that that private investment, you know, there's other programs that are happening very small, but over time we'll get to scale. So a great example is between Comcast and Philadelphia Works. They're creating a customer service training program that as they're placed and if they get placed and retain on the job, Comcast repays the workforce board for those training investment dollars. So that's a simple way to say, hey, we're going to make this investment. We'll use our dollars up front. But if it's successful, then you have some return in this as well. So if they're at the table, both as an investor and an architect of what they need, then that's going to tell that scale story in and of itself. That's really going to get you there. No, that's that's really that's really good. One company that is investing in skills-based learning is Google. Troy Blackwood, head of Structured Investments, joined Nitsan Pelman, Juke Su, and moderator Jake Edwards, Vice President of Impact Investing at Social Finance. Social Finance is a national nonprofit that builds partnerships and investments to mobilize impact capital. Troy and Jake discuss the investment Google is making in financing programs that put adult learners in sustainable wage jobs with help from social finance. Let's listen in. First, they're focused on removing upfront cost barriers for low-income and underserved individuals to access high-quality, non-degree education and training programs. Second, they invest in critical wraparound supports that have proven to increase graduation and employment outcomes. Third, they work backwards from employer demand, and they tailor programs and curriculum to actually meet demands of employers and lead to good-paying jobs. And fourth, they reimagine the risk paradigm and align incentives of all project partners towards student success. One recent example from my work that hopefully checks those four boxes, is our $100 million Google Career Certificate Fund that we announced in February of this year. Through that fund, we're focused on expanding access to high-quality training programs. So how does it work? Individuals will enroll with a set of training provider partners, currently Europe and Merit America, a portfolio that will grow over time. Through those training programs, we'll get access to career certificates whether that be in IT career support or project management, data analytics, UX design. The fund is supported by Google Treasury and through its philanthropic arm, Google.org, and will enable 20,000 learners to gain digital skills and land good-paying jobs. In addition to the certificates and those particular skill sets, learners will get access to critical wraparound supports, whether that be enhanced job placement and career coaching, or transportation support, or childcare support, looking to address the persistent barriers that are inhibiting persistence, graduation, and employment. When students graduate, if they obtain a job earning in excess of $40,000, they repay the program costs at zero interest through flat monthly payments of around $100. If at any point an individual earns less than $40,000, is unemployed or underemployed, their payment obligation ends. Troy, I gave the executive summary on the Google Career Certificates Fund, but this is certainly something that's near and dear to your heart and your everyday work. We'd love to hear from your perspective, what were some of the key objectives, parameters, themes, as you thought about what this financing should look like 
and how it should be availed to students. Yeah. One, Google's able to leverage their balance sheet, which, it, you know, we're in a position where we have a large balance sheet and we can leverage that. So $100 million is a big number and, a, and, a, and provide a lot of funding. But in terms of scaling, there are a couple of mechanisms that we've included in the fund that will help with that. So when Jake talked about successful students getting through the program, achieving uh, the career certificate, and landing a job above a certain threshold, those folks, when they pay back $100 a month, where that money is going is to help recycle to get more learners. So we have some very ambitious goals around this, right? We want to enable folks to create that path and enable folks to get these high-wage jobs um, in these new field and emerging fields that we think will be prominent in the future, um, but also allow them to pay it forward and help bring others up. Um, and the ambitious goal is that we want to get over 20,000 people um, to get to these successful jobs in, in this field. You know, the, the other thing is, you know, we'll be growing the fund in that way, but allowing social finance to partner with a number of nonprofits. Um, nonprofits, training providers like the folks on this stage and the folks um, sitting down here in the room, you know, we want to be able to work again with the best and brightest that already are doing the great work. You know, Google, we don't want to recreate the wheel. We want to provide the necessary funding to help students. And we think if we can create mechanisms that do it in a scalable way, then we can also create a model that can encourage others to follow suit. Um, so other corporates, other investors, other folks that are, are social impact minded or not but interested, you know, we've, you know, over the last several months since we've announced the fund, I've had a number of conversations with other corporates and other folks in the space um, that wear similar hats as I do and to try to help them understand the model that we're trying to create and not saying this is the perfect model, but creating something that's innovative and that folks can follow along with or even improve on in the future. And that's the most important thing on our end. Welcome back to our studio. Sarah, I have one final question. Troy Blackwood stated that he's been having conversations with other corporations. So why should corporations invest now, not five years from now and not 10 years from now? And we're talking about $40,000 a year jobs. Are we reaching high enough? Sure. Well, let me take the first question about the time horizon, and then we can talk about whether or not we have the right floor in mind. Um, but truly, I think the right time for this investment was 10 years ago, <laughs> to be quite honest. And that's all to say, 10 years ago, the conversation in workforce development was about mass dislocation and replacement of the workforce due to technology. And I just don't think... We're seeing that at scale. We're seeing a fraction of what we thought those massive shifts in the labor market were going to look like. What we're seeing now is more workers increasingly having to work alongside technology, which requires very different skill sets, very different training, integration of those concepts and those competencies into other more, you know, kind of core tasks that they would do as a part of their role. You know, all of these approaches that we're talking about are helping folks to think differently about this. If we're not creating programs that are nimble and can meet the ever-evolving needs of skill shifts and competency, you know, changes in the workforce, 
then we're all going to find ourselves behind. So I think it's absolutely critical now. It was critical five years ago, 10 years ago, and it will continue to be critical five and 10 years from now. But with respect to the the question of whether or not we're aiming high enough with the $40,000 uh, kind of uh, minimum repayment, I guess I'll say that that's the floor. That's just the floor for repayment. And I just want to highlight the value of that. I mean, when I graduated from college, I had thousands upon thousands of dollars in debt. And that repayment was happening whether I was employed, period. And it didn't matter if I was employed at $7 an hour or $70 an hour. I was, I was making those payments. You know, and, and a lot of the programs that were highlighted in the plenary, you know, especially the pursuit program is talking about taking people from making $16,000 a year to $90,000 a year. So I don't think anyone is targeting 40,000 as that's where we want people to get and that's where we want people to stay. They're saying that that seems like a reasonable financial threshold where in which payments are triggered uh, at whatever level. So, you know, I do think it's important to think through are these equitable repayment terms? Are we structuring this in the right way that is not going to continue to saddle the worker uh, with those payments when they are making what still is, you know, a, a relatively low uh, salary? So I think it's a really good question and something that we need to constantly assess. I mean, if outcomes are not being met and workers are staying at that level or even falling below that level, then there's a failure uh, in design and structure in the partnership. And that needs to be assessed just as quickly as any other significant capital investment would be assessed. You know, as I've said, talents are biggest asset and they should be invested in like they are the biggest asset in ways that really lead to systems change that really lead to better partnerships long term and that create a labor market that allow people to be economically mobile and resilient over time. Sarah, thank you for joining us. We look forward to seeing which corporations jump in next. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Tamisha. Thanks for having me. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of the Horizons podcast. Please let us know what you thought about today's conversation and share a comment wherever you find your podcast. I look forward to the conversation on our next podcast. For now, I'm your host, Tamisha Bridges Mansfield. <laughs>